the healthcare supply chain is not broken. It is performing as it was designed. We're just trying to use it in a way it wasn't designed to be used. And I think that has called both supply chain leaders and other healthcare administrators to really rethink and try to reimagine what should our supply chain operations look like. I'm Adam Bulka, and this is The Great Supply Chain Podcast. I'll be talking to supply chain experts from around the world, experts who are tackling challenges in their corner of the industry. People are change makers that drive innovation. That's why this supply chain podcast is about learning from those who lead by example. I hope that the conversations you hear will inspire you to drive change within your organization. Let's jump in. Welcome to another episode of The Great Supply Chain Podcast. I'm Adam Polka, and today we are going back on the road for a special on-location episode featuring the brilliant Dr. Randy Bradley. I remember when I first heard Randy doing what Randy does in a breakout session at ARM. He was talking about the value and, more importantly, the potential of data. Everyone in the room was hooked. He's truly a gifted storyteller. If you ever see him on the agenda of a conference that you're going to, try to work your schedule around him. It's worth it. Speaking of ARM, Texas is headed there, August 7 to 10 in Anaheim. And if you'd like to book a meeting with someone from our team, you can reach out to us on the events page at www.texas.com. But back to today's episode, Texas's VP of Advanced Technology and Industry and good friend of this podcast, Guy Courtain, is with Randy to discuss some historically bad inventory management decisions in the healthcare supply chain and how things like home health, data availability, and complex distribution networks are pushing us to make new, sometimes uncomfortable changes moving forward. So without further ado, over to you, Guy. Thanks, Adam. And we are here for another episode of the Great Supply Chain Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Randy Bradley. Randy, how are you? Doing well, Guy. How are you? I'm doing really good. And even better now that I get to oh, see you face to face for the first time in like two years. Two years, right. I mean, good Lord. Randy, first, for our audience, who are you? What do you do? A little bit about UTK, and then let's get to the content today. So, Randy. Yeah. So, so, Guy, I'm an associate professor at the University of Tennessee in Information Systems and Supply Chain Management. We're one of the, the top five programs in the country when it comes to supply chain, and my area of expertise happens to be mostly in the in the healthcare vertical. I had a question for you, Randy, side note. Okay. If UTK and Auburn had met in the tournament, who would you have been pulling for? There is no doubt. My office is painted orange and blue. <laughs> Not orange and white. Not orange and white. <laughs> <laughs> Does Mary ever talk to you about that? They didn't realize it until it was done. <laughs> I was going with a blue office, and then I said, I need an accent. They said, what color? I said, orange. But no one questions orange. Of course. When they saw the finished product, they then realized. they started wondering. <laughs> exactly. They'd have made sure in candidate. And that's what happened. That's right. All right. Anyways. Uh, for those who don't know, Randy's been an Auburn graduate, so obviously we know what, we know what orange he means. So, Randy. Talking about healthcare, um, obviously, from a healthcare perspective, we're coming out hopefully out of two years where healthcare, medical, everything has been top of mind for everybody, obviously, with the pandemic. When we look or when you look at what's happened in healthcare, what has the pandemic done in terms of shining a light on 
positives and negatives in the supply chain. Let's just level set with that. Okay. What have you seen for the past, like today, what have you seen? What are the big trends you've seen that, that the COVID outbreak has really caused? I think one thing from a, from a positive standpoint, the personnel. We know that people who typically go into healthcare in these roles, they're not necessarily going for the money. Uh, because they could definitely make more if they were out in the in the private sector right. doing other things, but they're committed to the the life, health, and well-being of other individuals. And so, when it comes time to dig in to make things happen that need to happen, they're going to do it. As I say, you know, there's a difference between Clark Kent and Superman. The problem is we ask these people to be Superman more than we expect them to be Clark Kent. So that's that's a good thing in a, in a way. The the other side is we realize that healthcare thought globally but they really didn't think globally, <laughs> right. right? They knew there was this thing about a global supply chain. They just never realized that they could be affected by it. And so with that long, lean, brittle supply chain, it was extremely fragile. And so one of the things I've consistently said, the healthcare supply chain is not broken. It is performing as it was designed. We're just trying to use it in a way it wasn't designed to be used. And I think that has called both supply chain leaders and other healthcare administrators to really rethink and try to reimagine what should our supply chain operations look like. So that's interesting. And, and it's a thread that I've seen as well in other industries. So I want to get your take on this. Is it a lot of lip service that we're going to rethink how we measure and look at supply chains? Are people actually taking action? Or are we still sort of hamstrung by our friends in finance who say, hey, this working capital, I'm going to shrink it down to as little as possible. I'm going to deliver your inventory just in time because I don't want it in my books. Oh, guess what? Michael Dell did that, right, where he never held any inventory and all the inventory was held for two hours while I was building things. So, yes, you know what? We'll give it lip service now because we were in a pandemic, but in a six months, a year, or you go back to our old ways. Do you think that, that is this is this sort of a, a reaction, or is this going to create a fundamental change in how we manage, run, measure our supply chains? I, I think long term, it will create a fundamental change. Currently, that's not what we're seeing. In fact, when I the data that I have that I've collected from healthcare supply chain leaders, 85% of them were saying prior to the pandemic, their primary approach to inventory management for MedSearch was JIT. And then when the pandemic hit, they then went to JIC, just in case. Okay. And so they started to, to hoard, and, and overstock was a thing. And so I love the fact that you brought in the financial executives. But in this case, it wasn't the financial executives. It was the supply chain leaders. Although they had an opportunity to be a more strategic player, they proved that they could not rise to the level because they were making inventory management decisions that were negatively impacting profit margins that were already razor thin. I mean, mm. going to that JIC didn't fix. Now, JIT wasn't viable, right. but there's a middle ground, right? And what, what it exposed was we just did not have that level of expertise to know how to properly navigate. And I'm speaking in general. Mm. Now, there are facilities that did a fabulous job of this, but we have more that did not. And so when we always say supply chain wanted a seat at the table, I've always said, what good is it to have a seat if you don't have a voice? Right. And then what is it good is it to have a voice if no one cares what you say? <laughs> right. And that's kind of been the, the trajectory that we've seen in healthcare supply chain. So the question is, is, is it going to change? I think what you're going to see is a lot of back and forth over the next five years between JIT and JIC because they don't want to be caught in this situation where they don't have what they need. And you and I both know there are other ways to do this. Right. Right. But, but this whole direct to supplier, I'm amazed at how many health systems say, I have no mechanism 
in place to buy direct from a supplier. The process does not exist. Interesting. They have become so dependent on distributors and even more so dependent on group purchasing organizations to do the negotiations on their behalf that they don't have that expertise in-house. So that brings me to a question which I know we could spend hours on <laughs> and it could get messy, but you brought up distributors. What do you think? I mean, it feels as if, and correct if I'm wrong, it feels as if one of the issues is that, you know, we off offloaded a lot of this decision-making to distributors. Why? It's like, hey, I don't want to worry about my inventory. Let someone else who handles fulfillment and logistics and warehousing, mm-hmm. they can handle that. All of a sudden I realized, well, if I'm having them handle it, I'm, I'm just one of many. That's right. So if I feel like I need it, they're like, well, get in line. Right. So all of a sudden now what we're seeing in our space for us here at Texas is more like CSCs, right? So mm-hmm. they're going to they're gonna start doing this themselves. They're going to take over the distribution model themselves. What do you see happening in that space? Because obviously distributors aren't going to go away quietly. No. And the hospital networks, you know, so what, what, what are you seeing? Where's, where's this going? One thing, we're seeing consolidation in the distributor space, right? Just like we've seen in the GPO space. If you go back to 2015, look at the number of GPOs we had versus how many major ones. There are only about four or five now right. that we have that are major. Of course, you still have the regional alliances and things of that nature. I think you're going to continue to see the same thing with distributors. They're going to start to pool resources and realizing that they all don't have the same set of capabilities. Not only that, there's not the same level of trust right. placed in them by those health systems. So health systems are really driving some of this by saying, you know what? I don't think I'm going to use this distributor anymore except for certain things. Okay. I've got my list of critical components, and that list used to be 10. And what I'm hearing from leaders now, it has grown by three and sometimes five-fold since the beginning of the year. And so what does that mean? There are more things now that I cannot be dependent on you to bring me because you're making me ration. Again, they love to call it allocations. <laughs> it's, it's reality. It's rationing. It's you right. can't have what you need, and you can't get what you want. <laughs> right, right. You get what I give you. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And you'll be happy with and it. You'll be happy with it. Exactly. But the problem is their lives on the line. Yes. And, and I get it. Some of that behavior by the distributors is based on the fact that they know that these healthcare organizations are hoarding, right? Their whole JIC mentality. But rather than working with them as a true partner to help them address that, we're slapping the hand. Slapping the hand doesn't necessarily get the behavior you want. It just makes you do it when you're not looking. Right, right. So basically what we're saying, instead of playing the beer game, we should play the distributor <laughs> life science game, right? <laughs> right? That should be the new one for business schools right. and colleges alike. So that's interesting. So one of the topics I know you and I have talked a lot about mm-hmm. is when it comes to this, so what is the solution? How do we build... How do you build the trust? How do distributors, what I'm hearing, how do distributors start becoming more refined with the service they provide, the inventory they carry? And then how do the hospital networks build the trust with their own folks, but also potentially distributors? Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna lead the witness here. I know it goes back to data and information, but is that the only answer? Or what else is there that, that these players can do to, to make the system work? Yeah, it's not the only answer. The, the whole thing we have to realize is healthcare is changing. It's transforming before our eyes. It used to be about you come to a facility, you receive the care. So all the products went there. But now it's not that. It's that we bring the care to you. Well, you could be anywhere. And so when you think about that, can I expect my distributors to both deliver to all of my facilities as well as to those what we now call these um, hospital at home or hospital in home? Mm-hmm. So now I've added these additional nodes along the distribution route that I'm expecting them to fulfill. They're not designed to do that. And even here, when we talk about urbanization and the fact that you can't get certain assets into certain areas. So it's not just last mile. Now it's the last 25 feet. Right. Well, 
most distributors don't want to do that because there's not enough margin in there for them. It's not worth their time to do this. So you've got to ask yourself, am I now going to have to become some sort of logistics service provider myself within my organization, which means a different set of personnel, a different set of systems to enable and augment those personnel so that the data does flow a little more seamlessly. And now my demand signal is not just in the hospital. Okay. It's from outside the hospital. So how do I now, and then how am I going to prioritize? Mm. Who am I going to service first? The patient at home or the patient in the facility? There are so many things from a strategic standpoint that I don't think it's been fully vetted yet. So we have gone all in in certain directions because it's the future without necessarily a platform to support those decisions. So that's it. You're going to laugh when I say this. This smells like retail yes. 20 years ago. Exactly. So I, I you know, I, so I'm kind of smart sometimes, Randy. I get, I get these flashes of brilliance. But it sounds like what's happening is that we're looking at the same model we saw 20, 30 years ago in retail, where it's before retail, right? It was just, I get stuff, put in the warehouse, push it to my store. Mm -hmm. And Randy, if you want a new sport coat, you better go to the store and get it. Right. Now it's, no, you go to the store, go on your phone, order it, get it sent to your home. You get it sent to the hotel you're going to be at, get it sent to your workplace, mm -hmm. wherever it may be. It sounds like we're seeing the same thing now. And as and, and this is my belief too, right? Obviously one thing the pandemic did was it changed the way we interact, telemedicine, right? right? Uh, remote schooling, mm -hmm. all that, let alone work. So my sense is it's gonna get more complicated. So do you think that the healthcare system needs to start thinking more along the lines of how do we pick up the demand signal? So pick up that data, mm -hmm. translate it, but then have the systems in place to prioritize what goes where and when. Right. So maybe that home care gets prioritized because, I don't know, the patient is, you know, more critical and, and I have inventory closer so I can mm -hmm. send it there. Or, but I can send you to a hospital where I have more inventory to, to tap into. Right. Do you think that part of, this is, I'm going to go more into retail too, part of that experience, which we're not going to call the fulfillment side, that the hospitals themselves will want to take more control of and now that the distributors hold that, well, where do you see that sort of evolving? I think some hospitals are going to have to do that. I think a lot of it really just depends on where you sit and what your current infrastructure looks like. If you're the very large health systems, you, you probably could very well go with a consolidated service center model and be fine. If you're that rural facility, and that's where we have the greatest concern, they don't have the wherewithal to be able to do that. So I do see an opportunity for service providers to come in and say, let us build out that CSC model for you. It mm -hmm. may not look exactly like, say, the big the big boy systems in the Northeast or the Northwest, but yet we can, in fact, what it might be is more of a regional mm -hmm. consolidated service center where I'm looking at rural hospitals in a given geographical area where they, it's almost like, um, what's the phrase we used to use when you, uh, cross docking yes if you will yes. right yeah so it's, it's a cross docking concept applied to healthcare for entities that don't have the ability or the financial uh, means to be able to set up a CSC so it's almost going to be that the distributors will become almost like we see in the 3PL world that's right, right? localized focus 3PL or distribution yes. so I'm going to say hey in rural Missouri I'm going to service the five or six hospitals in that area and I'm going to make this spoke inventory calls right. and servicing just for that. Just for but that. if you tell me to go to California, no, that's not my jam. Right. There's someone else. Exactly. So do you see that some of the distributors are going to have to start thinking, you know, acting global, but, but fulfilling locally? Fulfilling locally. Yes. And, and if they don't, what's going to happen is those regional alliances or those, those regional purchasing alliances or regional GPOs, they're going to start to figure out how they can provide those services via an outsourced mechanism. 
And so you, we, we do know that there are some distributors who have tie-in to regional GPOs, uh, but I think you're probably going to see that intensify. In fact, you have enough regional GPOs in most areas of the country to actually be able to act on this. Mm, so the, 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 as I say, the pieces are there. It's just that we haven't built, put the puzzle together yet. So why haven't we? I mean, is this, is this, I, mean, I love retail, as you know. <laughs> but what I hate about retail, which, it, and I'm, again, I'm leading the witness, is I remember this goes back to 1998 when I was at Forrester talking to retailers. And they're like, this e-commerce thing, why should we do? We've been doing this for 30 years the same way. I'm not going to change. Mm-hmm. Now look what happens. Right. Is that sort of the same mentality? I mean, I know as humans, we don't like change. But why, if the systems or the pieces are in place and the need is obviously in place, mm-hmm. why hasn't it happened? Or why why is it happening too slowly? We, if you look at healthcare now, different. The vast majority, eighty five percent to ninety percent of your hospitals are not for profit. Right. Right. So there's the other thing. There's not a profit motivation. So everything that I make, I've got to reinvest in this organization. Right. Margins are somewhere between three and four percent. So for you, you have to be very surgical in terms of where and in what you're going to invest and oftentimes i think the business case is not well made now is it a difficult business case to make absolutely not but who's going to make it right and i think that's where it falls down in healthcare because things are still even within a facility things are very silo right cardiology is separate from orthopedics which is separate from um, thoracic cardiology which is separate from radiology and so we have built these fiefdoms within the facility and those fiefdoms prohibit us from being able to think more broadly about what the environment is telling us that it actually needs. Right. And so what it is, we become late to the game. We do things when no one else cares about it. Right. Rather than saying, as Gretzky you said, let's get to where the pump will be. Right. Rather than where it is. Right. And and I think that's why there are opportunities for companies like Texas to come in and not just be a provider of a technology solution but to be a partner to help us think through what are the opportunities and how to take advantage of it. Do you think, it, let's let's take it out one level, right? We're talking to very North America, U.S., Canada-centric. If you look across the globe and the folks you talk to, are there regions or countries where, and I know there's different payment rules right. and all this stuff, but let's take that aside. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm being a good economist here, Randy. <laughs> let's hold that as a, as a constant and move it off to the side. Right. But are there other places that we here in North America could look at for examples of how to, to do this better? You know, China is always interesting. And, and I say that because having spent quite a bit of time there looking, working with, with their healthcare leaders, you begin to realize they're looking at our models, mm. particularly the, the GPO and the distribution model. And they're saying, what's right with it? What's wrong with it? And where's the opportunity? And so they're right-sizing those things to service these individuals. Because once you get into there, you still have individuals who are accustomed to traditional Chinese medicine, right? Right. TCM. Yes, yes. And then you have those who are more conducive to contemporary medicine. So they're they're different dynamics, but yet you have to have an environment, an ecosystem, and an infrastructure to be able to service both of those variants. And it's also, I may not be in one of the most heavily populated urban environments. I'm out in one of the outlying areas. Well, the same rules apply. We still have to make sure we can provide service and, and goods and supplies. And it's interesting because what I see with distributors, distributors are coming in and what they're saying is, you need this service, you don't have the means to offer it, we'll put that service in place for you. Interesting. It, it is interesting because it's no longer just just making sure that we can move supplies to you and to them. So, so it's really, Again, back to my old retail world, it's almost I'm giving a value-added service to the fulfillment by 
extra kitty That's right. or taking returns in the retail right. space. Right. Um, what are some of those value add services that, that you think some of these distributors can start bringing to the table, mm-hmm. which then might make them, you know, more valuable, but also make the hospitals more readily wanting to stay with them. I'll give you one good example. And I, I was in a, in, a, in a small town recently, and it's one that I visit on a regular basis. And I noticed, I looked around and said, gosh, how many, how many pharmacies are there? And there used to be three or four. I can only find one. Okay. Okay. So that one pharmacy is going to service that entire community. Not likely. Right. So what, what do I see people doing? Remember we talked about rationing? Yep. People are rationing medicine. Right. I, I can't afford to keep going to them because they have now, they control the market. Right. So because they control the market, they control the prices. And the pricing that they put in place doesn't work for me, so I need to make my medicine stretch, which mm-hmm. means I'm putting my livelihood at risk. Right. A situation like that, imagine if you have a distributor who would come in and say, Hey, small regional hospital, what if we put a retail pharmacy inside? Yep. We, you can run it, but we'll make sure it's staffed. Right. I've seen that in China. So VMI, basically. Yeah. But, but it's, it's a little different because the, the, three, the distributor is actually paying for the pharmacy. Right. They're not renting space to be able to push drugs. They're giving you the ability to better serve your you clientele. Are. Right. Even though we can't use clientele in healthcare. <laughs> right. Go figure. There's no clientele. No. There's no. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now let's not get into that because uh, that's that's a whole sticky wicket. But well, let's let's take this to the next level too. And, and obviously we're we're you know we're seeing a lot of automation. Mm-hmm. And when you start talking about this rural situation, I think back to I remember I use this case all the time talking about drone delivery. Um, and I remember DHL talking to me about this ages ago, where they're using drones in the Baltic to mm-hmm. deliver mail to you know these these isolated islands. Right. And now what they're also saying the the the, the, the positive is, hey, I can get my prescription whenever I need it. Now I have to wait right. when the boat right. shows up. Is there an opportunity here where we're looking at these kind of advanced fulfillment technologies? To as you said, well, there's only one pharmacy here, but if I have a drone or if I have some kind of automated delivery system. It doesn't matter if I have one pharmacy. I'll order my stuff from local distributor X, mm-hmm. and they'll just send a drone, you know, every three weeks and drop off my pills in my backyard. We're already seeing these types of arrangements being put in place, right? We've seen CVS and Walgreens contract with different drone providers to provide medicine. If you look at the UPS commercial, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty intentional that that delivery driver who's driving the bus is launching that drone from the top of the vehicle in a rural area. That, that video is not shot in an urban environment. Right. I think it's intentional yeah. to begin to show you, and it's not one-to-one, right? They're both going out and doing a job and servicing a broader area in a shorter amount of time. Right. And it's interesting when you go back to Zipline, right? Yes, the US, love Zipline. U.S.-based company, but where did they perfect it? Rwanda. Yes. And why? Because they need to prove the technology in an area that was somewhat free of regulations that would allow them to experiment and fail right. and improve. Right. And then you bring it back to the U.S., but when you bring it back, it's for a social good. Right. And and then you see UPS being foundational to the development of Zipline and then launching theirs. And when they first started, what was it about? Moving products across medical campuses. Right. Why? Because why would a regulator want to stand in the way of that? Right. And then once the barriers come down, then you go out to a consumer setting. Right. And that's exactly what we're going to see. And I do believe that's going to be a mechanism that would be value add in the future. Do you think that what's holding us back on that is regulation FAA or is it 
the fear that, oh goodness, if that zip line drill flies and drops something off at the wrong location or, you know, hits little Johnny he's up in his treehouse and it flies too low. What do you think is holding us back from seeing truly an explosion, if you will, of this kind of technology? I think it's a little bit of all of the, uh, of the above, but those things can be worked through because there's nothing that says that you have to drop it in front of my house. In most rural areas, you still have a local post office. Right. Right. There can be What's a the post office, Randy. I didn't know. They still exist, man. They still <laughs> exist. I don't know why, but they exist. So the whole point is, and I'm not saying you have to drop it there, but people are used to going to a central spot in their community to retrieve things. Right. Right. We can still make this happen. It's like this. We just have to take a step back and be practical. Right. And when we do that, we can find that there are easier ways to get things done. We don't have to complicate it. Right. No, I, 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 it, I, I, it's funny because I remember looking, I was in New York many years ago, and I remember there was a, a local news story on, on New York One that said, there's not enough room in New York, in the city of New York, for trucks. So I can't bring any more stuff right. into the city. So I was like, just send a bunch of drones in. And I was thinking to myself, like, like these big high-rise condos, these new apartments, and you're, you know, one of the things they say is, yeah, we've got dog walking in a pool and a drone airport on top, so you can get mm -hmm. your stuff delivered up there. Yeah, like a helipad. Like a helipad. Yeah, right? Exactly. So I, I, I think you're absolutely right. So let's... Well, let me go back yeah, to one ahead. point you made, because there's a, a, a fundamental point, which is when we're talking about pharmaceuticals or any type of medical supplies, there can be a problem when it falls into the wrong hands. Yes. But here's what we even see in hospitals that are using these advanced uh, AGVs. They're putting pharmaceuticals in the belly yep. of these AGVs, and those AGVs are going to specific floors. They can only be unlocked by specific individuals. Right. So the mechanism, if you look at Starship, yep. what Starship is yep. doing across university campuses, yep. you basically order your food, the little bot goes and picks it up, comes to your delivery point, only you can retrieve it. Yes. So there are safety mechanisms that are built in place to ensure the integrity and authenticity of what's actually in the asset. Right, and I, I think it's interesting because I remember when these first started coming out, people were saying, we're, we're flipping out. You're just sending my groceries on this thing and it's going to scoot around. It's like, well, we have things called mobile phones now, which have QR code readers and all this. Like, right. you know, there's ways around it. Right. Um, and I think that the technology is certainly there for us to do it. So I, I think it, you're absolutely right. I think it, it, it but I, part of my feeling though is I think a lot of it is, it is regulation. Mm -hmm. I just wonder a lot of it too is, are we as humans willing to, like, you and I, we live this technology, we love it, we breathe it, like, man, if you want to give me a robot, I'll take one right now, let right. Me, you know, do stuff, but I don't know if the rest of the general population, you know, what is the learning curve, and I'm sure once once we hit a certain threshold, boom, they'll get it, and, and I think what's happening, and it's interesting, I was just in uh, Cincinnati, and I don't know if you've been to the airport there, but they have little bots scooting around, and in my mind, I was like, this is a great way to introduce us as humans That's right. to have bots interact with us in a seamless way. That's right. Right. We go to a warehouse, we're used to seeing automation. Mm -hmm. But when I walk through the grocery store, the pharmacy, or you know, the airport, I'm not used to it yet. But we're starting to see that. Yes. We're seeing them in hospitals. My favorite bot is Pepper. Pepper, you see him pop up in hospitals. Basically, he's usually at a greeting center. Yep. And, and Pepper can move. And he'll dance for you if you want him to. And, but 
but basically he is the hospital information center. Yeah. If you want to know how to get somewhere, he'll give you directions and he'll take you part of the way. And I remember going into a hospital once playing with Pepper yeah. because there was an information desk that was staffed by a human. Right. And the human had the scowl on their face. Right. Said, Don't ask me anything. Right. Been sitting there for four hours. Yeah, exactly. My wife's been yelling at me. And I'm like, angry. Yeah. And so I go ask a question and they, it's almost like the soup Nazi from Seinfeld, <laughs> right? right? And it's like, okay, I'm sorry I, I interrupted your day. I'll go talk to the robot. Right. right. So I go talk to Pepper and Pepper not only tells me where to go, but guides me part of the way. So the next day when I came to that same site, I didn't even go to the help desk. Right. I went straight to Pepper. Pepper. And then the person looked at me like, I'm here. Yeah. It's like, but, but you don't want to do the job. Right. Right. And so I think you're right. There are ways that we can help people become more acclimated to interacting with these bots. Right. Right. Great. All right, Ray, one more question. Last one. Let's let's look out five, ten, maybe twenty years, right? So that no one can go back and say what we said on this podcast was right or wrong. But when you look out, you know, that time frame, when you look at CSCs, distributors, healthcare systems, uh, an aging population that's going to require more you know, health, mm-hmm. uh, pharmacy things, uh, more telemedicine, more, more at-home health care. What does the healthcare supply chain look like? Oh, gosh. I'm going to sum it up in this phrase here. We, we know omni-channel in retail, right? Yeah. It's going to be omni-channel on steroids. It's going to take us a while to get there. It's going to be some stumbling. We're going to figure out, but we're going to have to learn how to work together. The beautiful thing about healthcare is even though you've got multiple facilities in one area, they still are all partners. And right. the reason why they're partners is because that patient doesn't stick to just one. They move around. It's not like I'm going to always go to Kroger, I'm going to always go to Publix, I'm going to always go to Macy's. I'm going to primarily stay within a vicinity of a set of healthcare facilities that may or may not be connected or in alliance with one another. Right. But they're going to be forced to. Right. Because the asset, if you will, is going to continuously run in that loop. And they're going to want the information to move with them as they go. I want when I come to you, I want you to know where else I've been, what else I've done, yep. what else has been provided, and where my gaps in care are. Right. The gaps in care, gaps in supplies. That's omnichannel on steroids. And yep. right now, healthcare cannot do that because I don't even think we've even thought about that. But if we follow the trends in retail, we can say, let's not fall down like retail did when that hit. Let's learn from them. Right, right. I know I said last question, but I ask you one more quick. Because what you just said made me think of this. What do you think about the fact of we said like medicine's regionalized, mm-hmm. but then like I was hearing stories during the pandemic, like people taking trips to like Southern Florida. Why? Because there was so much vaccination, right. vaccine available. The Floridians weren't taking it. I'm not gonna get into that, but. So people were coming in for tourists and like, hey, I'll get my shot. You guys don't want it. I'll take it. Mm-hmm. So Florida was showing, hey, we have 100% vaccination usage, but 80% of the people from outside, right. of the, right. outside of the state, outside the country. Then we're seeing, like, I remember going to Dubai, where Dubai is pushing, you know, they're, they're recruiting all these top doctors and they're mm-hmm. building beautiful medical facilities. And now they're saying, hey, come to Dubai to get your knee replaced. Mm-hmm. What is that? Because now it's not just this regional. It's medical it, tourism. It's, it's global. Yeah, it's global. Yeah. How are you going to share the information? How are we going to make sure that the gaps of the product is taken care of on a global scale? Mm-hmm. I mean, how are we going to, I mean, is this going to cause, is this going to be an opportunity or is this going to be potentially uh, a danger, if you will, if this, this sort of becomes interwoven with what right. we see as our traditional medical health system? It, it becomes a danger if we try to control it. If we try to restrict it, if we allow people the freedom to move, to get the care they want, wherever they want, 
then all we need to be able to do is to have it documented. Mm. And so whether it's requiring the facility to push this to a common registry, we see that in orthopedics right now. So it, it's not it's not uncommon or foreign to us. But then there's also we've seen where Google has been playing in this space. I think Microsoft played in this space where you're giving people the ability to have their own electronic personal health records that they then update, they modify, they control. Apple has started to play in this ecosystem. Oh, yeah. So basically the whole thing we talked about is do I need my medical records on the chip? No, I just keep it in the cloud. And so now what happens is giving the, and what it comes back to, it comes back to rights. The patient's right to control their data. It's not a foreign concept. The federal government's already said the data belongs to them. Health systems are nothing more than the custodians of that. And what I'm now doing is allowing those individuals to control with whom they give visibility of that data to. And I think if we do that, this is not a, it won't be as, as bad of an issue as we perceive it to be. You guys can't think I'm kind of smirking here because you just opened up a whole can of worms. <laughs> I'm not going to get into it now, to, to, but I think that's something I want to ask you to come back and talk about that. Because I think, Randy, that's, that's one thing I would love to get your opinion because I, I the whole data privacy, who is my information, who I can share it with. And I'm just thinking supply chain here too. Like, all right, if the information I have here... You know, when I go to my doctor in Boston, is that the right format if I end up going to Dubai to get my knee replaced? Or if I want to go to China to get something? Mm -hmm. Or if I go to Argentina for something? Or if I even go from Boston to Chicago to do something else? Like, you know, we see this all the time in supply chain. Like, we always say, oh, well, it's data, it's data. And you and I both know this. Right. Goodness. Like, the way some people translate or share data, right. where you think it should be standardized, is such it's a not. mess. That's right. And now we're thinking, or I'm looking at, every individual who now is doing this. Mm -hmm. You know, we have, what, six billion people in the world? Whoa. Like, yes. mind blown in terms of right. what that challenge looks like. But let's save that for another okay. day because we, you and I could talk for another hour <laughs> on this. So I, I don't want to go. But, Randy, how can people get in touch with you? How can they find you? Um, you know, people looking for Dr. Yeah. Randy Bradley. I'm easy to find. You can find me on LinkedIn at Randy V. Bradley, Twitter at Randy V. Bradley, Instagram at Randy V. Bradley. TikTok? Or go to my website. No, no TikTok. <laughs> go to my website, randyvbradley.com, and you can find me there as well. Randy, as always, great seeing you after two Likewise, years, but always good to, uh, to do a podcast with you. Um, really good information. So everybody, uh, again, Randy gave you his information. Thank you so much for listening to uh, the great Supply Chain Podcast. And with that, we will see you soon. Guy and Randy, that was amazing. Great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on location to share your insights and uh, to help all of us, both on the vendor side and the provider side, um, to help us appreciate the road we have ahead and to be more intentional in our supply chain decisions. This has been the Great Supply Chain Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. I hope our guests sparked some new ideas and inspired you to push the boundaries of supply chain. New podcasts will be published on the first of every month. In the meantime, please reach out with your thoughts or questions or even an idea for a future episode. You can email us at texaspodcast at texas.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified as soon as a new episode goes live. And please share it with a colleague and leave a review. Until then, this has been the Great Supply Chain Podcast. I'm Adam Polka, and thank you for tuning in.